Good evening. Once again, we are here to, as we say, uh, worship our God. And on this evening, and even though it seems a little dreary, before we left the house, we had a, th- a lot of thunder and lightning and a, key- and a teacup full of water. <laughs> and I got down here and it hadn't even rained, so uh, that's not a good sign. <laughs> but hopefully we'll get some anyway, for sure. We need it, as we all know. As we've looked for the last three Sunday evenings, we've looked at the fact that God is able. And we looked at the fact that He's able to challenge us. And the last two Sunday nights, we looked at He's able to comfort us. And this evening, we want to look at the last of these, which simply He's able to change us. And we have looked at this through the eyes of the book of Psalms, because we know they, all of them, are an excellent expression of the ability of God, His power, and what he's done and continues to do for mankind, even though they were written hundreds of years ago, they're, they're speaking still with us today concerning how good and how great God is. Psalm 8 sums it all up when it simply says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all of the earth. And I am sure for a fact that, not, that, that any heart can really fully measure, any tongue can ever really fully utter the greatness of the God of heaven. Words fail us. They're not enough to use. And what words we do use are not even adequate to begin to describe the greatness of God and His continued care and love for each one of us. So we realize and understand God is able to do more than our minds can ever begin to imagine that He's capable of doing. And when we look at the Psalms, they do remind us of this. Their elements within them remind us that the creation of God is full of His glory and the creation is evidence of the power of God. When the psalmist declared unto us in Psalm 19:1, he said, Heaven, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament or the heavens declare as it were His handiwork. There are many other statements scattered throughout the book of Psalms which also as well as this one begin to describe what took place and what happened when God created the heavens and the earth. And one such psalm is Psalm 104 and it explains many of the different what we call handiworks of God. But it's interesting though that not only does he discuss how God created the world, he discusses how God continues to take care of this world. Look at verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants, for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. Notice in that statement, only has he declared unto us that God created the heavens and the earth, and it's basically he's letting us know what was said in Genesis by Moses is true, but notice he makes a very profound statement. If it were not for God, there would be no grass, there would be no plants, there'd be no livestock, there'd be no food to eat. That He is the one who sustains us and takes care of us. Again, a full expression of His goodness, an expression of His wisdom that we find manifested everywhere we look, both in our creation, in the Word of God, and in our lives. But this should be no surprise. When we looked at last week with Psalms 139, what does that psalm declare to us? That God is everywhere. You can imagine for a moment if there was a place on this earth that man had never been. 
and you were the first one to walk through, we'll call this for a moment, a valley that no one has been before. You're the first one to bend the grass under your foot. You're the first one to startle the animals who live in that valley who have never seen anyone but them, you know, each other through all of these years. You are the one that says, I am the one who found this valley. But remember, God is already there. And has been since He created it. We may be the first to see it, but God has already been there. Scientists explore, as it were, the unknown regions of the human DNA. And they're, not, and they're finding out, as it were just now, if you want to call it that way, what God already knew about us. Because He created us. And as that psalm reminds us, any place man goes, any place man looks, God is already there. So with the most beautiful poetic of expressions, the ones who wrote these different psalms declare that God is everywhere, that God is able, exceedingly able, to surpass all of our highest expectations that we want of Him to help us live our life. So we go back to our psalm of theme, 34 and verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. It is my hope and prayer that we remember that verse, that remember that simple admonition every day that we live, every morning we wake up, and truly each day taste and savor, as we would call it, the goodness of God in our lives. And the joy that we have when we realize that we trust in Him, our faith is Him, and He has never forsaken us or ever let us down. But yet, in spite of the fact of saying that, in spite of the fact God's children can testify to all that is said within the book of Psalms of God's greatness, there are still those in our world who do not trust God and those who do not believe in Him, nor accept Him for who He is. Psalms 107 verse 8 says, Let them, that is us, thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. What a beautiful statement. He's asking unto us to thank God for what He's done for us. But you say to yourself, oh, I wish that was the case. But a majority of this world fails to notice, and many of this world do not even understand or comprehend or care about loves, God's love and goodness. But His providential care, his divine bounty is enjoyed by all of His creation. Every one of us enjoys the sunshine and the rain, whether we believe in Him or not. Even to those who will not accept it nor notice it. Again, the psalmist said this time in Psalms 107, this time in verse 43, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of God. In spite of the fact that the majority of the world has no use for Him, does not want Him, Take the attitude, I can do it myself. God still says, I love this creation and I will still provide the things necessary for man to live on the face of this earth. Yes, his eye is on the sparrow. But his eye is on his children. And he blesses us day after day after day. But yet, the fool still says in his heart, there is no God. 
Let's look for a moment at that psalm, Psalm 14, and begin to realize something which we may have realized, but sometimes we don't think about it in these terms. There are those who are atheists, as we would say, by faith. That is their religion. They worship, as it were, the world around them. They worship themselves. They do not accept God. There's no God. They never have, He's never existed and they just put Him out of their mind. But at the same time, there are those who are atheists by practice. In other words, with some, they may not come out and actually say there is no God, but their actions, their deeds say more loudly than anything they could ever speak in words. Psalms 14.1 still says, The foolish said in his heart, There is no God. But a foolish person can be anyone who does not believe in God sufficiently to conduct their lives in the fear of the wrath of that living God. So they may not say it, and they may not be a practicing atheist by faith, but the actions they perform speak louder than anything they could ever say. You remember when we began this 21st century. Man, as I've said before, looked at this century with great optimism. We are passing out of the 20th century. We've had two great world wars. We've had the Vietnam. We've had Korea. And man, has said it had been a century of war. Man looked forward to the 21st century. We can start all over. We can wipe the slate clean. The 20th century is behind us. It'll all be nothing but history in our history books that we can read about down through the years. For a moment, we stood on the brink of great possibilities. We celebrated this, 20, this new century with greater fervor than we had any other time or another new year. We're 16 years into this new century. And we look around us. And what do we notice? Man hasn't changed. And matter of fact, he's become worse. All that optimism. All that looking forward to a new century, a new beginning, wiping everything out of the past away and starting over a great fervor. It's gone. It's gone. Continue listening to the psalm as he continues in Psalms 14. Notice what he says in the latter part of 1 through 3. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Then we mean morally good as God defines it in His Word. Those who try to live according to His law. They're none good. The, look, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who, are, who understand and who seek after God. What did God find? They have all turned aside. And let me emphasize, they weren't born that way. They chose to be that way. That's what the psalmist wanted us to understand. God looked down from heavens and what did He find? That man had chosen to be evil. Man had chosen to live his life as if there is no God. And when you think about it, even though that was written hundreds of years back in the past, it sounds like today's headlines. And it's still depressing to read, to realize, even after all of these years, that when we look at human beings and their conduct, it's still depressing. 
Because man basically hasn't changed. He may think a new century will make new things. It'll be an all new clean slate we can start all over. But basically when it comes down to it, man is still not any different than he has been. What the psalmist just did is this. He took off them rose-tinted glasses and said to us, this is what it's really like. He made us look into the mirror of God's Word and let us see for ourselves how ugly we really are and want us to understand that even though we may not want to hear it, we may not want to accept it, but it's the fact. And the fact is none of us are sinless. We've all turned aside. We've all lived our lives in which was contrary to the will of God. And that in itself indicates how helpless we really truly are. Every one of us. But, seeing ourselves as we really are may not be enough. Because man has a short memory. He forgets what he sees. Is that not what James said in the first chapter of his marvelous book? Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if he, when he says, is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. Yes, man may have looked at this, looked at the word of God and said, well, it's nice read. It'd be good if you followed it, but I don't accept it. Why? I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe he can help me. So let's ask ourselves this question. Can anyone here today claim that they have always lived and conducted themselves in moral perfection? Good. I didn't see anybody doing this. <laughs> Not one. Why? When we look at our world today, when we look at our world today, do we still see lost people? The answer is yes. We still do. Does it have to be this way? No. It doesn't. Is it possible that we can change things or we can change our lives? Absolutely. But here's the problem. We live in a postmodern world. We live in a world that has said to itself, I can make myself good and I'm going to do so. I have determined I'm going to change my life. I'm tired of the way I've been living. I'm tired of whatever I'm involved in. It's doing me harm. It's killing my body physically. I'm sick or whatever. It's financially it's destroying me. I'm going to change. But here's the problem. Man wants to do that and he gets in his mind, I'm all excited, I'm going to change. Then he takes attitude, I'm going to do it myself. I don't need anybody else's help. I'm going to take care of me. I've got the ability. So we live in a what we call a DIY world today. An independent mentality. Which the, our generation and this one's come after us wants to glory in themselves and not the Creator. That's the post-modern world we live in. So if we're going to change, man says, I want to do it, but I am going to do it myself, my way. I don't need God to make me live morally straight and morally right. We take pride 
and be independent. They take pride. We can take care of ourselves. But we are dependent creatures. And I don't care how anybody thinks they can do it on their own. We do depend upon God for the very air that we breathe. We depend upon God for that. And as hard as we might try, we can't do it on our own. We just don't have that power ability. It doesn't work. But God is able to change us if, the big word, if, we will let Him. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. Paul said to the brethren at Corinth, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Notice the past tense. Notice he said, such were some of you. But it says they had changed. How? What happened to them? He continues saying, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God had changed these people. These people had not been morally perfect. We could say as you look at the list that Paul uses there to describe them, you might say this is some of the worst of the worst we can ever think of in way of sin. They're just about gone, gone as far down as anyone can go. Yet it tells us, in spite of the fact that they once were these kind of people, Paul says they were washed, cleansed, justified through the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. God was able to change these people. He is able to turn their lives around. He had the ability to do that very thing, and Paul said he did it. He changed them, and he is still able to change us today. Why? He's no respecter of persons. What he did for them, he will do for us. He'll do the same. So in our good news that we can proclaim today is this. The gospel still has the power of salvation. And he can still wash us, sanctify us, and have us stand justified before the God of heaven. God is still able to change us one at a time. But we must ask ourselves, how does God change us? How is He able to do that? Verse 11 says that the change takes place by the Spirit of our God. God is able to change us, and Paul says it is through His Spirit. Now, is this this mysterious better felt than told? That we fell on our knees and cried and cried and prayed and got emotionally out of control and we just cried and bawled and squalled for hours until we felt that feeling that God had taken care of me and now I'm saved by the grace of God? I don't think so. I don't think so. It won't work that way. It's simple. 
to understand what Paul meant here. Go to the sixth chapter of Ephesians. Drop down to verse 17. And what does he say? That the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The Word is the sword of the Spirit. And what is that sword of the Spirit capable of doing? We'll go to the Hebrew writer. And this time we'll turn to chapter 4 and verse 12. And he says there, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and the discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now we learn that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. We've learned from the Hebrew writer that that sword is able to cut us, as it were, that it's able to discern, see us for, we'd say, inside out. Can he do that? When the first sermon was preached, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, Paul, Peter, and the eleven stood up and preached that marvelous gospel for the first time. Did he not wield the sword of the Spirit? Yes. And how do we know? Those that heard him were what? Cut to the heart. Were cut through the heart. How? The Holy Spirit of God had convicted them through the preaching of twelve men on that day in the streets of Jerusalem. That's how it happened. It was that two-edged sword. That two-edged sword had done enough and had worked its power and it made these people feel ashamed of what they had done. And it reminded them that days earlier, they are the ones who said, crucify Him, crucify Him. He's the one, Peter said, you by wicked hands have crucified the Son of God. You didn't kill one who was causing treason. You killed the Son of God. And that sword had cut them. But that sword does more than just that. It does more than just convict them. It does more than just saying until you're not living as you should as a a person. That Spirit also instructs us how our sins can be washed away. And it instructs us how we can live and conduct our lives without bringing any more shame and guilt upon ourselves. See, in Acts 2, where the people were cut in their heart, that conviction, that realization, they felt was not enough. Why? The change wasn't complete yet. They were guilty. And so they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? At that moment, Peter inspired by the Holy Spirit and the eleven with him, wielded the sword of the Spirit once more and says, it's called repent, being baptized, and what? For the remission of sin. What happened? They were cut to the heart. That is, they looked in the mirror. They looked at God's Word and they seen the ugliness of their own sinful souls. But fortunately for them, they didn't leave and forget. They became doers. Of the word. What does it say in verse 41? Those that received his word were baptized, and 3,000 were added that day to the church. 3,000. 
God is still able to do that today. He is still able to make us from sinners to saints if we obey the gospel and do the very same thing Peter told those people to do on the day of Pentecost. Again, as we said this morning, that's not my words. That is the word from God. That's His teaching. That's His plan of salvation. So today, in the 21st century, 16 years into it, God is still able to change us from servants of sin to servants of righteousness if we obey from the heart the same gospel preached on Pentecost. Is that not what Paul meant in Romans 6? In verse 17 he says, But thanks be to God that you were once were once slaves of sin, but have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. What is he telling us? He's reminding us, when are we changed? When are we free from sin? When we obey from the heart. When we obey that gospel, when we let that blood of Christ wash away those sins, when we rise up a new creature, justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, and by His sword, we are now children of His, like it was the day the church began. But you see, That's not the end of the story, is it? Not only is God able to save a sinner to become a saint, He is also able to change a weak and erring Christian into a strong and faithful child of God. He's able to do that. We know from the teachings of our Savior, through the uh, book of Acts and the epistles. The admonitions are many, which remind us to be steadfast, to be strong, to be faithful. That warns us of the dangers of falling away, reminds us that we are capable of doing so and reminds us here's what you need to do to keep staying strong and when you sin, what you need to do to ask God's forgiveness. One of the most beautiful admonitions, no matter how how many times we read it, still rings true. One of the greatest admonitions to remind us of being faithful and steadfast is found in 2 Peter chapter 1. Beginning with verse 5, it says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is probably one of the strongest admonitions. What we call these Christian graces. These things which we add each day. These things which we work on each day. These things which help us grow as a child of God each day we live on this earth. I, like you, go through a change every day. 
Several things come to people's mind when someone says, I'm making a change. First thing you think of a job or a place to live. But I am going through a change every day. And we always say to ourselves, hopefully that we're doing that which is right and growing as a child of God. We all are growing every day as a child of His. We continue to grow as long as we live on the face of this earth. We continue to add these graces to our lives. We continue to increase them. We intend to learn more about them. We can apply more of them in our lives as we live. We can grow. In the same apostolic authority that Peter would write what he said in his second epistle, Paul writes to us as he begins the definition of Christianity with Romans 12. He implores and he commands when he begins, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice in that, as Christians, we are told, we are commanded, we are admonished. Paul would say, I'm even pleading with you to demonstrate God's good, acceptable, and perfect will before the world. We are the examples of Christianity. We are, as Christ calls it, the salt of the earth. We are the only testament at times many people will ever see concerning what it is to live as God wants us to live as His children. We become walking examples of that. We are that shining light. We are sitting on the hill. But when we fail to do our reasonable service, when we become conformed to this world, then those around us will never see a living demonstration of God's will being put into practice. And sadly, as children of God, we all know that we do stumble. We do falter. We do commit those things contrary to the will of God. And we become stagnant. And we quit growing as a child of His. But the good news is, God can change us. God can change us. It is called the blessing of forgiveness. That blessing of forgiveness is available to every child of God when they stray from the truth. If we acknowledge our sins, if we pray to God and ask for His forgiveness, for His help, His strength, and His guidance, as He has taught us to do, He has promised us that we can know the joy of forgiveness when we've done so. Can God change us? Yes, He can. His gospel still has the power. It has not diminished from the day of Pentecost of the 16th year in the 21st century. It is still powerful. It is still able. The simple thing we ask of you this evening, if you need to respond, do so while together we stand and while we sing.